Amen. So um, again, I know I give this introduction each time, but uh, Moses is recounting the law. Leviticus was given to the nation of Israel, and that generation that received it has passed away. And the younger generation is now about to enter into the promised land, and Moses is recounting the law to them so that they have the first-hand information in that process. And we had begun the discussion of the cities of refuge. So in chapter 19 at verse 1, it talks about how they would establish these three cities. It speaks of inside the borders of Israel because uh, the two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, half the tribe of Manasseh, that are on the eastern side of the Jordan have three cities of refuge established inside their Tory. And the cities are for those who might accidentally cause someone else's death. So we would say manslaughter today. Working with someone, accident occurs. There is capital punishment if you cause someone else's death. And the avenger of blood would look to come, usually a family member of the individual who died, would look to come and execute you as a result of the death of the person. In this case, if they have accidentally caused the death, then it's essentially, at the end of the discussion, it's a life sentence to live inside the cities that we're describing. So they would flee to the cities and they would dwell there until at least the high priest had passed away. And then seemingly their sentence would end. So in this discussion, the roads and the signs indicating where the cities of refuge were to be, were to be clearly laid out, marked, and well-maintained so that anyone who's you know, unfortunately found in these circumstances would easily be able to find their way to the city of refuge. We left off in verse 8, well, we read 7, and verse 8 says, Now, if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has sworn to your fathers and gives you the land which he promised to give to your fathers. And if you keep all these commandments and do them, which I command you today to love the Lord your God and walk always in his ways, then you shall add three more cities for yourself besides these three, lest innocent blood be shed in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, as an inheritance, and thus guilt of bloodshed be upon you. So there were to be six cities of refuge in total, with three on each side of the Jordan River. Each of the three cities on either side would be positioned northward, and then central, and then in the south, so that people could easily and quickly get to them. I think that the more significant element is God wants this nation as a people to uh, have a very uh, serious attitude about bloodshed. That if someone dies, they as a country are supposed to have a great sense of loss. I just watched a video and read an article about two deputies engaged in a shootout with an individual who was had 27 felonies and was out free on bail. Pulled over, law enforcement officers talking uh, to him, the driver of the vehicle and another woman, child in the car. This man pulls out an assault weapon and opens fire on them. More than 100 rounds fired in less than a minute. They end up killing the suspect in the process. But the larger question is, this man who's already guilty of so much bloodshed, why is he out on the streets? Well, how in the world can that be? Because we have come to the place where we're not looking for justice anymore. We're looking for social justice. And the minute that you change justice from being justice to anything else, racial justice, social justice, then you nullify the word justice, right? Justice examines 
truth against falsehood, right? Guilt against innocence. It determines where you lie on either side of that. And there's only two sides to those things. Once you've determined it, then judgment is cast. Not so with social justice. You know, determine guilt. Okay, now you've established guilt, but then examine why. Well, what is this individual's history? What have they been through? What contributed to their lifestyle and their mindset that would cause them to behave in such a way? And therefore, the justice is robbed. You're left with no justice. It is incredible how dangerous our our cities have become. This you know, used to be a time where we would think of these things as like far away, right? You know, it was several years ago now where two individuals had had a conversation with a fellow drug addict where this fellow drug addict was in a pawn shop and a gentleman was in there trying to sell a series of baseball cards that he had. The drug addict witnessing him trying to sell those base co- baseball cards made this, I was going to say assumption, but imagined that if he had those baseball cards to sell that way, then surely he must be very wealthy. Told his two drug addict friends about how he had witnessed this, and by the time he tells his friends, assures them that this man has more than $50,000 cash in his home. This is locally. They go to his house in the middle of the night. The girl goes to his door, right, his trailer, right? All of us that live in trailers always have $50,000 cash lying around, banging on the door in the middle of the night, saying, I just crashed my car up the road. Can you please come and help me? It's 3 o'clock in the morning. It's not fitting right with him, so he puts his own firearm in his waistband, and puts on his clothes to go help out this poor woman that just crashed her car. As he steps out the door, her boyfriend is right beside the door and clocks him in the head with a tire iron. He staggers off the porch and falls down. She's screaming. He's still alive. Shoot him. Shoot him. Shoot him. Her boyfriend opens fire. He ducks and dives, retrieves his weapon, fires a few times, really just to, you know, scare them off. He hits the guy with the first two rounds. She drags him up the driveway, puts him in the car. He passes away before she can get him into Ellsworth. He has no money in his home. No money. Just seeing him trade. He had some collectible baseball cards he'd had for a very long time. He was low on fuel, you guys. So he took his baseball cards to the pawn shop to see if he could get a few extra bucks. And he wasn't even looking to sell them, right, because they're collectibles. He's just seeing, can I give these cards to you, get some cash, put some fuel in my tank, get my paycheck. I'll be back Friday to get my baseball cards back, right? Someone died in the instance. Why? Because our culture doesn't value life. This isn't, like like I say, this isn't the faraway big city that's scary. (laughs) You know, this is locally happening in our midst. Our culture has lost the value of life. And more important than, like, life sentences versus execution versus... The Lord is saying you have to have a very strong value on life. And how he does that is to say... You have to value your own life. If you can't value your neighbor's life, understand that if you cause harm to them, it's going to cost you your life. So if you don't have enough moral compass, enough selflessness to value your neighbor's life, you should at least have enough to value your own and say, I'm not going to do harm to my neighbor because it could cost me my life, right? Even accidental harm in this setting. This is the balance God puts in place. Whenever society and culture casts off God's rules, his law, 
his guidance, then that culture just incrementally stair steps down. I've pointed out to you before, right? 1963, we throw the Bible and prayer out of the public schools. From 1963 to 1973, there's a 500% increase in violent crimes in America. And everybody stands around going, what happened? You cast off God. You threw away his guidance and said, we don't want this anymore. There's much worse ahead of us. The way, the direction, the things that our culture is doing right now, there is far worse ahead of us. One of the things I had a book here for a while, some of you uh, got it and read it for yourself, uh, but this assassination generation, you know, school shootings, all of these different things. Uh, one thing that they're not talking about, it's actually coupled together as two. I'll dwell on the one first, is all of these young people that are engaged in this have an unbelievable obsession with what they refer to as first-person shooter games. Where, where these young people are sitting at home all day, you know, and before they've had breakfast, they've killed 20,000 people in their video game as a first-person shooter. You know, what, what is the goal of first-person shooter, right? High score. Kill as many people as you can before you lose your own life. That's how that whole system works. You know, another thing they're not talking about is almost all of these young people uh, that we've been able to get the records and research and document from, they're all on uh, behavioral modification drugs, antidepressants in particular. So they're, they're in an altered state chemically, and they're continuously experiencing killing mass amounts of people, you know, in the pretend world, and then suddenly they're doing it in real life. So, you know, study, consider whether there's a connection there. Our culture losing the gravity of human life. Verse 11, but if anyone hates his brother, lies in wait for him, rises against him and strikes him mortally so that he dies, and he flees to one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and bring him from there, deliver him over to the hand of the avenger of blood, that he may die. Your eye shall not pity him, but you shall put away the guilt of uh, innocent blood from Israel, that it may go well with you. The guilt of innocent blood. This is literally capital punishment execution that we're talking about here. And while that's very disturbing to a lot of people, you have to understand God's mindset within this, right? There isn't just the attitude of slaughter. An individual has purposely, mind you, in this setting, killed someone else. There has been a court case to verify that this was a purposeful act. When it has been established there's a purposeful act, then what is being said is tell this person that they are going to meet their maker. They're, they're going to be put to death. That gives them time to get right with their creator. This, this isn't some wicked attitude that says just destroy or even, you know, more send them to hell. It's a matter of you've done something that's unspeakably wrong. You're going to receive the punishment in order to free ourselves from this in our culture. And you have the opportunity to enter the presence of the Lord for eternity. It's very gracious. You have to understand how beneficial this is to a culture, right? There's no joy in this at all. But the cultures who do this to this day... Murder is very low, extremely low. You know, consider 92,000 homicides in the U.S. annually. You know, look at other countries that hold to this, and they have 11 homicides in a year, 15, 22 homicides in a year. When you tell an entire culture, if you murder someone, you are forfeiting your life, it causes people to have pause before. Why? 
Not because right, all of those occasions where the murder, they, they find that very often what it is is the moment of rage, right? That they respond to. What it is is it halts almost 100% of the people who hate someone and they start to plan and they go, no, I am not going to do this because it will cost me my life. The premeditation, right? Malice, a forethought, as we say. It takes away almost all of those murders from the culture when you have a hard line of this. That, that's the raw evidence. Uh, you know, the opinions fly, do they not? You get into certain cultures, certain settings, and have conversations, and people have all kinds of opinions about this. When you get down to the raw statistics of it, uh, the numbers are undeniable. This brings complete halt to this behavior, you know, almost complete halt to this behavior. Our culture would be well served by it. Spiritually, right? You can wrestle with that all on your own. We're in the New Testament sense of things, right? None of us is in charge of this country calling the shots on all of this stuff. But examine your own heart in regard to New Testament aspects of this. Matthew chapter 5, interestingly enough, we're going to reference that a bunch of times. If you're uh, you know, not that familiar with where to learn such things from the Scripture, Matthew chapter 5 through 7 is what we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus gives the most brilliant explanations to many subjects such as this there in that relatively short sermon. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother Raka, which is a statement of hatred and aggression, shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hell fire. Now, before you get all excited about that, you must understand that this is a different terminology of fool than what we would use today. That person's silly. That person's foolish. That person is mindless. Uh, Proverbs tells us that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, right? So this is the idea of, you know, as a believer looking at someone else and saying, you are godless, you're going to hell. So if you say to your brother, you're a fool, you'll be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, you go to worship, and there remember that your bro brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Listen, if trying to wrestle with an entire nation or an entire culture's understanding and laws and behavior in regard to all of this, you know, if that's difficult for you, I would say just set that aside and hear what Jesus said there on the personal level, right? If you're in church worshiping the Lord and you recognize in your heart that you have some kind of anger and animosity between yourself and a fellow believer, the Lord is literally saying, leave your gift at the altar. Go be reconciled to your brother and then come back and worship. Uh, he's telling us the level of hypocrisy that is in our heart if we can, you know, stand here this morning, close our eyes, raise our hands, sing our songs, and yet there's hatred in your heart. There's something dramatically wrong with that. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, where we're stuttering, studying, they specifically said if it can be proven, if you've killed someone and it can be proven that you hated them previously, they have grounds to convict you for murder, that, that it's not even manslaughter. That means you've got to keep your heart in check all the time, right? Eh, tell me, guys, maybe even ladies in the room, have you have not had certain people on the job site that, let's be blunt, at times you'd like to just choke them, right? Just, why can't they just shut up? You know, I don't know. Okay, it's me. Pray for me. You're not like that. But I think you know what I'm saying. Look, if our heart is like that and you're working with them, you know, 
what a shame that that cinder block fell on their head. You know, it's, this, this is what the Lord is saying. The Lord is saying you need to deal with, if your heart is aligned that way, you need to deal with your heart so that no one could ever say of you that you'd be guilty for having done them harm. That if the accident does occur, no one's going to come forward and say, do you know that these guys hated one another? You know, we probably shouldn't have put them on the back of the job site working alone together with power tools. You know, I don't. Consider what the Lord is saying to you and I about keeping our hearts in the correct place. Therefore, you know, bring when you bring your gift to the altar, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar. Go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. John, right, who the scripture refers to as you know, the apostle whom Jesus loved, you know, was close enough at the last supper that as they were laying there on their elbows at the triclinium eating their meal, he leaned back on Jesus' chest and was able to confer with him and talk with him. That John in 1 John chapter 3, verse 15 says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Hatred is not part of our faith. Uh, later, he says in chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? You know, you have a brother right there in plain view. You've got all the opportunity in the world to correct the relationship. Uh, consider what the Lord might be saying to each of us about our thought life and our attitude. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 19, looking at verse 14. You shall not remove your neighbor's landmark. So we, we're getting a number of different things that are put forward to us. In this setting, I think it's very applicable in a slightly abstract way. Do not remove your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set in your inheritance, which you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. So as they go into the land, the land was to be divided up and each of the tribes, there's 12 tribes, are all going to receive their land and then those portions are to be divided and lots are to be drawn and it's to fall to each one of the families and then down to the individuals. So everybody gets their portion of land that is going to be their responsibility to own and to work. And what the scripture is saying right here is don't move the boundary markers. Okay. And that's ever, never move them. Once you move into the land, you inherit the land, leave them in place. Well, you know, you, you might be thinking, well, what if I bought the property next door? You don't get to buy property in Israel under this law, right? There is only lease agreement. You, you could lease it uh, for the seven-year allotments or for the 50-year allotments, and then it was to return to the original owners. So you could take a portion of property and assess its value as far as raising crops, and you could pay the individual who it actually belonged to them the sum of money that was agreed upon in order to have that land and work that land for the period of time that you were agreeing. But after that time expires, it returns to the original ownership. So don't move the boundary markers. Why? Because it's theft. If you want your field to be a little bigger, you just go out there in the middle of the night, gather up the pile of stones, you know, move them 50 yards, you know, farther away from your house so that you are now claiming your neighbor's property. You're stealing land is what's being said. The Lord has a number of things to say about this throughout the scripture. Proverbs chapter 22 verse 28 says, do not remove the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. In Proverbs when it says that, it actually implies a spiritual landmark also. Don't move the boundaries that have been set. We were just talking about manslaughter and murder apply this to that and that's part of the reason that they're coupled together this way what god has declared as 
inbounds or out of bounds, you need to leave that way. Now, I often refer to the issue of marriage. We conducted the ceremony yesterday, as I mentioned, and when I conduct a ceremony of marriage, I am sure to point out that marriage is the biblical union of one man and one woman as husband and wife, right? Not one man and many women, not one man and one man. According to the scripture, one man, one woman for life until death do us part is what the scripture records. If you're thinking, well, now, wait a minute, Abraham and others had more than one wife. Yes, and the Lord rebuked them as being in sin. And they also had to deal with the consequences of living that way. None of that was within God's will. Throughout the scripture, God lays out the mandate and men choose to obey or disobey it. And when they obey, they have the benefit. When they disobey, they pay the consequences. Don't move the boundaries that God has set. You know, you say, well, marriage is not between one man and one woman. It can be between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. Yes. And so now why can't it be between one man and many women? You've moved the boundary once. What says that it can't be moved again? You keep moving the boundary and you end up like India, where several years ago now a woman married a dolphin. I'm not just saying that for humor's sake. Once you start moving, once you look, if you say, no, no, this isn't God's established law. He created us, and therefore he gets to say the way things will be or they will not be. If you don't have that in mind and you have this attitude like, oh, this is just the opinion of men. Men have established this. This is the thing, you know, humanity has created and imposed upon itself. You start moving the line, then what says you can't move the line wherever you want to? Right? The reason that they're set in a specific place is because there is a God that created us all. And that God who created us all gets to say what is right and what is wrong. Right? You know, some of us have been involved in building different things. You know, if, if you've built a gate, if you've built a door, if you, you know, have set things in a certain way and someone comes along to use that and they're not using it properly, you can say, hey, that gate's not working because you're not unlatching it properly. You're the one that established how it should be opened, how it should be closed. So you get to tell them that's how. So you don't know what I'm talking about. Have you seen a teenager open the door with their foot? Right. <clears throat> and loudly wished that they would not. Right? People do that. You've established something in a specific way and someone else chooses to do it differently because you're the designer. God is the designer of all of creation. So he gets to say the way things will be and will not be. The more that our culture moves away, moves the boundary markers, the more we all have to pay the consequences as a result. All of us. Right? Somebody else moves the marker, and you start functioning inside that false boundary. You get to pay the cost of the disobedience also. <clears throat> Verse 15 of chapter 19. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses the matter shall be established. The very first thing that does is eliminate a lot of gossip. Right? If you're the only witness to someone's failures, keep your mouth shut. If other people are witness to it, right? If there is a need to bring attention to it, then more than one witness has to be responsible in this. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, 
then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. Wouldn't that correct a lot of things? You know, imagine how many people would be impeached. Right? You bear false witness. You come forward and say things that are false. It doesn't even have to be proven that there is some, you know, specific. It just has to be proven that what you're saying isn't real. Oh, if you can prove that, right? There'd be a ton of people in jail on every level of our society if we were still functioning along these lines. You don't get to bear false witness under this. Then you shall do to him as he thought to do to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you. And those who remain shall hear and fear, right? This is going to cause you to keep your mouth shut. You're not going to spread gossip. You're not going to say things. You're not going to bring accusations. Why? Because there's known punishments. You understand that? You don't even have to you know, come forward and say, I think that person did such and such. Therefore, I'd like to you know, have them have to pay a $1,000 fine. Or I'd like them to go to jail for a year. Or I'd like them to be put to death. There are known consequences to sin that are all established in the law. If you make a specific accusation, then that punishment associated with that sin would automatically be carried out. If you bring an accusation and it's proven that person did that, then the law would be upheld and that person would receive their punishment. So whatever punishment comes naturally according to the law based upon your accusation, if you're found to be false, that's going to be delved out on you. That'll cause the whole of the culture to be afraid of bringing false accusations. Our culture has no consequences. You know, people just run their mouth, say whatever they want to, publish whatever they want to, experience tremendous, you know, difficulty in, in the other person's life because of the false accusation, and then people just walk away like, oh, well, so it wasn't true. No big deal. You know, fake news. How about the punishment that would follow? I think that it would be wise to understand the benefits of this. And those who remain shall hear and fear. Hereafter, they shall not again commit such evil among you. Your eyes shall not pity. Life shall be for life. Eye for eye. Tooth for tooth. Hand for hand. Foot for foot. Right now, just so we understand those statements of eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. And people get to the New Testament and say, well, Jesus is saying, turn the other cheek. Okay, this is actually a limitation, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It's not an extension of abuse. It's the Lord saying you can only, you know, remove the tooth, remove the eye, remove the hand if the eye, the tooth, or the hand has been lost. Because this, especially at this time, this Middle Eastern culture, right? If you did something wrong to your neighbor, they'd gather their whole clan. Uh, together, show up at your house in the middle of the night, kill you, slaughter your whole family, burn your house, kill all your livestock, destroy everything on your property, and then go home. You know, you did one small offense, right? You know, knock somebody's tooth out, and they come over and destroy everything that you are. This is the Lord saying, no, no, if someone, you know, got in a fight and knocked somebody's tooth out, the worst you can do is knock out their tooth. We, we, don't, we don't get to go overboard, is what the Lord is saying equal measurement is what the Lord is saying. So consider the balance that is described in these passages and how beneficial it would be as a culture or individuals to embrace this idea. <clears throat> Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, a similar thing. I'm going to give you a couple passages in regard to this. And just so we get things in context, Paul has gone to Corinth, he has preached to them, converted them to the faith, and established a church there. A good, strong, vibrant church. He leaves, uh, I'll just say a bunch of low-life guys come and get involved in that church and twist things around and convince people that Paul's not all that special, that he's not really even an apostle, and you don't need to listen to him, and they got all kinds of negative things to say about Paul. No evidence. They're just there running their mouths, degrading Paul. Paul writes first in 2 Corinthians to correct the church at Corinth over the fact that they've listened to false witnesses 
and their church has been corrupted as a result. Church splits have occurred. You know, this little group is saying, oh, we really like Apollos. That little group is saying, oh, we really like Peter. Some are staying with uh, Paul. Others are, you know, being super holy and saying, oh, we only follow Jesus. <clears throat> In the process, Paul writes to them about the witnesses. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. This will be the third time I am coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. I have told you before, and I foretell you as if I were present the second time, and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before, the ones who have carried on this way in the past, and to all the rest, that if I come again, I will not spare. There will be punishment, is what Paul is saying. Let everything be established by two or three witnesses. These people that have said things falsely against me are going to be punished. That's the New Testament. Paul saying to the church, we're not going to put up with this within the church. Uh, gossip and rumors are something that the church doesn't correct and put up puts up with more than a lot of other things. And it's really treacherous. It's really treacherous. The whispering, the gossip, the backbiting it divides churches, destroys the work of the Lord. I, you know, I know a lot of non-believers that experience that inside the church say, well, that's part of the reason I can't stand church, can't stand Christianity, is because of all this backbiting gossip and hypocrisy. Well, well I'll just point out, right, every job I've ever had that goes on in the workplace, okay? So it's not something that's, unique and significant to only thank you very much only christianity i'm saying it's human nature and it's something that we should shed that as believers we should not function this way there should be a very different conduct for us he has to address it again later as he's ministering in the body of christ he sent out timothy and titus and he writes to timothy and says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19, do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Don't, don't even receive it. Somebody comes and says, do you know what this pastor's done or that elder's done or that you know, church leader has done? Don't even receive that unless it's been by two or three witnesses. Uh, unfortunately, you know, we've seen enough of that in years past to know that very often what's being accused is true. At the same time, I've seen pastors accused of terrible things that aren't true at all. Not, not even remotely true. So consider you know, what our heart does in regard to entertaining uh, those false accusations. I want to go a little bit further. If you can turn over to chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 20, we've got about seven minutes here, and I just want to dig into this next chapter a little bit. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 1, we now uh, are being given some principles of warfare. So this group of people that's now going to enter into the promised land is going to be met with an insanely ungodly, murderous nation, and they're going to have to do war uh, with them. And now we get some principles of war that the Lord lays out. So Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 1, when you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses, and chariots, and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So it shall be when you are on the verge of battle that the priest shall approach and speak to the people, and he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid, and do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. You really have to understand uh, that God is with us and God supports us. 
Okay, uh, the battles we're engaged in right now, and particularly as I started, we were discussing, you know, all the legalities and, you know, governors and presidents making mandates and the battles and the fights that we're in. It can be very intimidating to look at those things. The Lord is on our side, and we have to rest in that. You know, uh, I know some people, maybe even within this congregation, have refuse to refer to Joe Biden as their president. You know, they'll say the man who currently resides in the White House. You know, not my president, things of that nature. Well, I love you all very dearly, but guess what? Joe Biden is your president. Okay? As much as we don't like it, perhaps, he is our president, and we are called to honor him and pray for him. Wouldn't it be magnificent if Joe Biden surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. Right? I wish no harm upon the man. I will oppose him at every turn where things are being done unlawfully, illegally, incorrect, in an ungodly way. I will. I will oppose him. Even, you know, whatever, whatever method possible. Uh, but the bottom line is... Uh, the scripture tells us that God ordains who the king or the president is. We often, right? No, there's, there's very few amens when I say that, right? But here's the deal, you guys. I, I have often said the scripture says that you get what you deserve. This is a godless nation who has chosen to rebel against God, and even rebel against the leadership that God has put in place. And we're going to continue to experience these things until this nation is submitted to God, submitted to Jesus Christ. We're going to continue to experience these things. And it may be the back and forth, right, where we get a leader that we you know, actually desire. And we go, oh, thank goodness. And then you get one you really don't want. Oh, the, the United States of America's military should be all over the world policing the world and bringing correct behavior and righteousness to those countries and to those communities. We should be in Afghanistan right now. In force, saving those dear people. We should be there, right? God needs it. No? Do you like law enforcement in your neighborhood? Right? Do you like police officers making sure that the thugs don't run your street? Well, I bet that the people of Afghanistan would enjoy it if we were there making sure that the thugs didn't run that country. So, so, so these things are good, but how about this, you guys, right? We're still killing 1.6 million children through abortion every single year. That's hypocrisy. If we're going to stand up and go over to another country and say, this is a human rights violation right here, and we won't put up with it anymore, which I think we should be doing. Simultaneously, it's hard to believe, but Jimmy Carter said the Democratic Party will continue to struggle for legitimacy until it considers the human rights of the unborn child. Amazing. Amazing. As a human being that we're butchering as a nation, and that the list goes on from there, right? That's just one element of the atrocities. I mean, now now take the same subject matter, right? You know, free sex and move into the fatherless children of our nation. Broken homes. You know, the atrocity, that's an atrocity. And, and, and just go down through the line because of the immorality of us as a people. We need to enter into every single battle that we have. And when, when you start reading these statistics and seeing just how bad off we are 
as a nation, don't be intimidated by that. Right? More with them, greater numbers, greater strength, greater opposition. So what? Right? Hey, you know, David killed a real giant. That's not a storybook fantasy, right? We've been into the region, and archaeological digs have proven to us, oh, there actually were giants living there. And I'm talking giants, like 11 feet tall, femur bone, three and a half feet long. That's a massive human being. You know, iron bed frames, 12 feet long, door latches in their homes at six foot in the air. Giants live there, right? Uh, you should be aware, most of you are probably aware, <clears throat> right? Uh, David, uh, how many stones did he take out of the brook? Five smooth stones, right? He killed one giant, right? Uh, you're probably aware, later we learned Goliath had four brothers. So maybe he was prepared for all five of them. Right? He wasn't intimidated. I'm going to go kill that giant right there. And he told him that, didn't he? I'm going to come kill you. I'm going to take your head off with your own sword. And he did that very thing. Massive giants in our lives, in our circumstances. And i got to tell you, right? I'm not standing here saying these things uh, from lack of experience. I've had to face giants in my own life. And I've seen Jesus Christ conquer them. Internally, externally. I've seen Jesus Christ conquer them. There needs to be a boldness about our faith that causes us to live in opposition to these things that are enemies of our faith, enemies of the church. It doesn't matter if they've got an entire government at their disposal. It just takes one person standing up and saying, nope, not going to put up with that. I will oppose this. You know, it was interesting as Ken was preparing to have the lawsuit against Governor Mills, uh, Liberty Council contacted him and said, we're begging pastors like you to bring lawsuit against your governors because we can't do it. They can't just as lawyers go sue. They have to have someone stand up and over and over again where these governors uh, or, or excuse me, where these pastors are, are being violated by their, their state government, those pastors just shrink away and shrink away and shrink away. It has to be someone that stands up and says, I'm not going to put up with this garbage. And I'm going to oppose this. Listen, you guys, this is the beginning. What we're experiencing right now, this is the beginning. It's going to require more and more that we stand up in our workplace. This whole thing of they're going to fire you, right? My wife is going through this thing right now where she's enrolled in the University of Maine Augustus nursing program. They're telling her, we're going to take all your scholarships away. We're going to expel you from school. You're not allowed to be in the nursing program if you don't get vaccinated. She has to stand up and say, no, I'm going to continue to go to school and I'm not getting the vaccination. And you know what they did? Oh, well, um, we'll back up from that position. We'll give you another month. And she said, no, not going to get the vaccine. And you know what? Then, then they reinstituted the religious exemptions. We will. Previously, they were saying, no, we will not. You cannot have religious exemption. As long as we lie down, they're just going to continue to steamroll us. You've got to stand up and oppose what's there. When Jesus said, you're salt and you're light, right? Salt, he didn't say, oh, you guys are going to just make things taste so good. <laughs> Salt was the preservative, right? You know, we say today, oh, that's like putting salt in the wound. In World War I, they didn't have that tone at all. They said, oh, that's like putting salt in the wound. Meaning it's a good thing. Right? That's antiseptic. 
In World War One, when you're in the battlefield and you've had a bullet graze you or you've torn your flesh open, the, the first thing that happened was your best friend ripped open a packet and dumped salt right in that. Smarts like anything, but bind it up and you're not going to get infected. We're here to be the preservative. If And what did Jesus say, right? If the salt has lost its savor, what good is it? If the church is not opposing you guys, if the, if the church is not preserving, then we're not doing our job. We're not doing the very thing that Jesus said. Salt and light. You are the salt and the light. The light dispels the darkness. People say that all the time, right? Oh, dark days. Oh, I went home to visit my family. Oh, that town is so dark, right? The smallest light dispels darkness. It just gets rid of it. Anywhere you put that light, it just moves it out. You don't have to have it. It's nice when you've got like a million candle watt halogen that you can you know see from here to the island with. That's nice. But if you're in the pitch black looking for your car keys that you just dropped underneath your car, that little tiny light on the back of your cell phone is really handy, isn't it? Smallest light. you got to illuminate. If you're not, right, if you're not salt, if you're not light, uh, I'm a Christian, but I don't like to resist anything. Thanks for nothing. Literally, thanks for nothing. The whole world. Look, if that's not your call, it's not where you're at, I'm not going to beat you up over it. But please understand that this is a necessity of our faith. We must do this. Be At least be supportive of those, right? Get behind guys like David that are crazy enough to go out on the open field and face that giant and embed the stone right between his eyes. Because it has to happen for the sake of everyone in the process. We do not do this, the entire right? You extract the Christians, there goes the neighborhood, man. It's all over. We've got to stand up. Romans 8.31, I'll leave you with this. Remember that I said this, write it down somewhere, Romans 8.31. You should be familiar with where Paul said to the church in Rome, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the truth of the matter. If God is on our side, if we're on God's side, then nothing can oppose us. Make sure that you're not letting yourself be intimidated by the wickedness of this world. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. That's what we get time for today. We'll pick up at verse 5 next week. Why don't we stand and we'll pray together. Father God, we are so grateful for your love, for your word. Help us to be men and women that submit ourselves to you, that learn and know your word and live by it. Accomplish what you want to in each of our hearts. Guide us as sons and daughters. Lord, open those opportunities for us that we would be able to step through and see your kingdom come and your will being done in those settings. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless.